freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello singing Let Freedom Ring. Appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to light the fuse of possibility. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling justice seekers and freedom fighters together, and we're tuned into the big and agitating questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? Where do we come from and where do we want to go? We're together in this intentional fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum wrapped in contradiction, this place of outsized and crazy complexity. These lands were stewarded by many peoples and lineages, ancient and contemporary home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy. We acknowledge them and thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is read by our regular contributor, Light Ai A poem from Hafiz, the 14th century Persian poet. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere. The nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. This is your time to put words on the page, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head. Here's today's prompt. Write a short piece of speculative fiction in which you describe either the end of capitalism or the end of the world. Which is easier to imagine? Okay, get started. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast. Two young steelheads are happily swimming downstream when they pass an old crab sitting on a rock in the cool mud beside the river. How's the water? asks the crab. The young fish look at one another blankly. What's water? they ask. 
That's an old and universal story, and its meaning is evident. The fish are the last to notice or to be able to describe the water whose dimensions, texture and temperature, chemical code, resonance and resistance, nonetheless constitute their entire world. Because they live within the water, it's taken for granted, and because they can't quite imagine a non-watery world, they have a limited and distorted view of their own home. The taken-for-granted, as always, exercises a powerful pull. It's difficult for some city dwellers in the West, for example, to comprehend drought, even severe drought, as long as water pours from the tap, as it always has, whenever the faucet is opened. They will have to step outside their increasingly non-watery world if they'll ever develop a truer and more accurate picture of their own closing habitat. Our own human steelheads today, however, are driven by more than innocence or naivete. Evidence of cataclysmic climate change and environmental collapse are all around us. Easy to see and easy to understand wherever you look. The raging fires and the freakish storms, the droughts and the floods, the climbing rates of extinction, the stressed out birds or the fading bees, the frazzled fish or the misshapen frogs, the temperature, the air, the water. It takes some bizarre combination of self-interest, privilege, cynicism, ideology, corruption, dogma, or chutzpah to keep one's head buried in the sand, denying the facts in favor of cloud cuckoo land fantasies. But denial is not just a river in Egypt. No, magical thinking is the name of the game for the cataclysmic climate change deniers, our own steelheads. This magical thinking takes many forms. Climate change is a theory, they say. That's the first line of defense for the steelheads. And the science is disputed. Climate is always changing and has for millennia. That's the second line of defense. And anyway, it's in God's capable, if mysterious, hands. He gads. Okay, it's getting warmer, but the causes are complex and unknowable. That's the third line moving backward. And you can't prove that it's caused by human beings. In any case, ingenuity, the free market, and technological advances will work out the kinks as we become ever bigger and better and more prosperous forever. Then there's narcissism. Whenever I look outside, my grass is green. That's another line of defense. And finally, misdirection and an appeal to anti-intellectualism. Don't trust the liberals and their pesky friends, the scientists. All of this is nonsense and demonstrably bogus, and we'll get into more of that later. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours. That's pronounced ah. This is where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our radical imaginations and we ask both what's going on and then what is to be done. I'm excited to be joined in conversation with Peggy Shepard, an activist and organizer, a community educator, and a leading figure in the fight for environmental justice. 
She is a co-founder of We Act for Environmental Justice and its current director, been the director actually since the beginning, a nonprofit environmental justice organization based in Harlem. Peggy Shepard, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be with you this morning. I, I, I would like to begin a little bit with the origin story of We Act and, and maybe a little bit about how you came into the movement. But this is an organization that was founded in 1988, and you were there at the, at the beginning and you're still there. Tell us a little bit about We Act, how you got into that movement and, and what your focus is now. Yeah, so um, I got into the movement because... I had been using my skills in political campaigns, uh, my writing skills, um, doing public relations. And I had been the public relations director for the first Jesse Jackson for president campaign in New York. And um, he's my neighbor here in Chicago. He's at two blocks that way. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it would be hard to to really explain the excitement of that campaign. Wow. Um, you know, it was the start of the Rainbow Coalition. It was bringing young people across the city, across the state together, um, thinking about a new diversity of, of politics. And, um, you know, I was right there. And back back at that time, uh, anybody could run as a delegate. So all of these young people in their 20s were uh, lining up to run as delegates. And my job was to promote them. And so I was meeting people um, all over the city and working with uh, Democratic clubs around the city and really getting an understanding of the benefits certain communities had, given the the richness of their advocacy, mm-hmm. and then looking at other communities that didn't have that advocacy system and their lack of benefits. And so uh, after the campaign, you know, I've been working with Bill Lynch, was, who was a campaigner extraordinaire. And after the campaign, um, he asked me if I wanted to uh, be working behind the scenes or if I wanted to be out front with my own ideas. And he said, um, you know, there needs to be some new political action in, in the West Harlem community. And um, I think you should run as a Democratic district leader and I'll run your campaign. Wow. Great. So um, I said yes. And we he ran my campaign and, um, you know, we were doing the old school way of getting volunteers and having weekly meetings with them. And at one of the meetings, um, a volunteer said, uh, there's a sewage treatment plant that's about to come online. Are you going to get people jobs there? And so um, not knowing anything about a sewage treatment plant. Um, we got people jobs there. We got 30 people hired. Mm. And then when the plant began operating, it began spewing emissions that were making people sick. And so that was the beginning of my environmental activism. You know, we organized for about six years to get Mayor Koch, who, you know, really was very opposed to, to the uptown uh, elected officials um, who said, oh, there's nothing wrong. You know, we've got state of the art, you know, technology. And then, of course, we we found after David Dinkins became mayor, uh, after Koch, that, in fact, there was no odor equipment, that the plant was not being run 
uh, in the way it needed. And so Dinkins funded a, a study of the plant, which gave us the information uh, as to how it needed to be maintained. And so we ended up filing a lawsuit against David Dinkins, who grew up with my father in Trenton, New Jersey, um, because we realized that it couldn't, we couldn't just depend upon the goodness of David Dinkins being in office, mm. uh, that we really needed a mandate. And uh, so we uh, had a settlement of our lawsuit on the last day of the Dinkins administration. Uh, we got a $1.1 million settlement of our lawsuit, and he committed $55 million to fix what was a brand new plant. So that was our first campaign. And once you begin to see those issues, um, you begin to really look at the community in a different way. So then we began to understand that uh, the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, was going to build a new bus depot across the street from a public school. And we began to look at that and realized that every depot in Manhattan, except one, was located uptown. Uptown meaning meaning Harlem, right. Meaning Harlem. Right. Harlem, Washington Heights, East Harlem, Central. Right. Right. And that meant that we housed over one third of the entire bus fleet in New York City. And so we began to work um, over 18 years to get the MTA to um, convert their buses to hybrids. And now they're converting to electric buses. You know, you've touched on a couple of things that I want to go back to. One is, I know that WE Act is very committed to citizen involvement. Um, and, and, and you talked a bit about how research led you to certain kind of, uh, kind of clarity around the targets that you were going to mobilize around. Talk a bit about community-based participatory research. Yeah. So when we were working on the sewage treatment plant, we reached out to Harlem Hospital, um, uh, the head of pulmonary medicine there, John, Dr. John Ford, and we said, do you see more emergency room visits coming from the zip codes where we have this plant? And he said, let me look into that. So two years later, because, you know, research takes a while. Two years later, I got this phone call from Dr. Ford saying, my God, you know, we're about to publish a paper. And we found that uh, the prevalence of asthma in Harlem is three times the rate of uh, other neighborhoods in New York City. And that was just an amazing statistic. That was the first real study um, really showing the prevalence of asthma uh, in, in New York City and probably around the country. So we're working with, uh, so after Dr. Ford uh, let us know about his findings, uh, we began working with uh, a research center at Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. And we worked with a scientist named uh, Patrick Kenny, um, and he got a number of pilot grants to really begin to investigate the level of fine particulates uh, and the level of poor air quality uh, in many areas of our community. And that began to give us the first data um, that we could really use to, um, to really base our our campaigns uh, in, in an evidence base. I guess there's two things that, that, that impressed me. One is you don't want to just go off 
at loose ends. You want to know what you're talking about. And the research really helps you say in a very targeted way, this is the target. This is what we're going to do. But the other thing that I'd like you to speak about a little is you come out of the Jesse Jackson moment, which was a moment um, where really mobilizing, it wasn't just electoral politics kind of click the ballot. It was mobilization. And I'm interested in your thoughts on how we walk toward freedom or walk toward justice on two legs, one leg being real politics and one leg and advocacy and one leg being community mobilization. And I think we act tries to do both. And that's not easy. Yeah. You know, when we first got started um, and we would you know, send out proposals to foundations and we talked about community organizing and policy work, um, the foundations were freaked out. We don't fund organizing. And I said, well, we're not asking you to fund organizing. You know, we're doing the policy work, but, you know, we're letting you know that that's our theory of change. Right. That we have to organize the most affected people. Right. By right. And so we began to develop membership and really understood that we had to create a broad base of support for policies and that by organizing the most affected people by environmental pollution to tell their stories, to educate elected officials, to testify at hearings, that that was our theory of change uh, where we could really help to create a more sustainable uh, community. Right. So we've been very focused on capacity building for the movement. Mm -hmm. We are very focused on movement building uh, and working with groups around the country. And what is the state of the movement today, would you say? Um, I think it's alive and well. Uh, uh -huh. um, I, I think it's gone through a number of phases over the years. Uh, in 1991, we had the first People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, and that was an opportunity to realize that there were hundreds of groups around the country who had the same, with communities that had the same problem. And it was, uh, it was uplifting, uh, it was mobilizing to understand that you weren't alone, that this was um, a paradigm across the country of racial injustice uh, in environmental decision-making. Yeah, in a way, it's no surprise that the history of this country, that the injustices that we see in healthcare or education or criminal justice would also express themselves in environmental concerns. But you really have, in many ways, led the way in shining a sharp light on that. And and maybe, maybe for listeners, say a word about how you define environmental justice or environmental racism or climate justice. Are those different? things and how do you how do you explain those things to people? Yeah. So the environmental justice movement is a movement to to address the environmental racism that has really scarred um, and scarred the communities across the country, whether they're African American, indigenous, Asian, uh, Latino communities. And we know from numerous studies that the primary predictor of where a toxic waste site is cited is a community of color and secondarily a low-income community. So it has been environmental racism that says 
oh, well, we can't put the sewage treatment plant where it was first uh, supposed to be sited in New York on the Upper West Side. Why don't you move that up to Harlem? Because, you know, our land is so much more valuable here, right? So everything is, why don't you move it uptown? And so we understand that our communities are environmentally degraded. They're targeted for pollution. Um, we're also uh, the, the last ones to get the benefits. So are we going to get solar? Are we going to, to get the benefits of a new green economy? Um, so the movement has started to stop the bad stuff. And we've moved into the phase of how do we bring green benefits? How do we bring the parks? How do we have more trees planted? How do we have green infrastructure? How do we begin um, the transition to solar and renewables um, and cleaning up our buildings? And so uh, the movement has, has really gained a lot more sophistication in terms of policy and how we impact policy. Now, of course, we've been doing all of this with very few resources, which is why, you know, um, some of your some of your listeners may say, you've been doing this since 1988. Right. Um, why are we just hearing about environmental justice? Well, we have not had the resources that the big green national groups have had mm -hmm. um, to do the kinds of communications and the websites and, you know, uh, be quoted in the media every day. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when we talk about environmental racism, it's also the lack of media attention. It's mm -hmm. the lack of resources. Only one half of 1% of all the environmental funding in this country goes to environmental justice. There's mm -hmm. over $24 billion in environmental philanthropy, and only one half of 1% goes to environmental justice. That must be shifting. Are, are you seeing a shift or are you imagining a shift? We are seeing a shift. Um, some of it has come from the movement itself in working with foundations to um, to support smaller funds mm -hmm. that give um, smaller grants to 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 small grassroots organizations. Um, and then we're getting attention from the larger foundations now that understand that there can't be climate uh, real climate legislation in this country. Uh, that affects everyone without everyone being a part of that. You know, I, 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 it's interesting. I see since my friends Jeff Jones and Eleanor Stein have made me aware of, and and they're always reminding me for decades that environment is part of the movement. It's not only is the crisis interacting with every other crisis, but we need to have some urgency around it. But as as I pay more attention, your name appears everywhere, talking to every politician. And I saw that you spoke at Biden's um, environmental or climate conference, right? What did you, did you speak to Biden himself? I mean, was he listening? Um, during the campaign, mm -hmm. um, we met on Zoom with Biden at least two to three times. Okay. Um, he wanted to listen and hear from the environmental justice community. Um, after he was elected, we probably have met with um, his transition team and now uh, the people, the secretaries he has in place, um, sometimes twice a week. 
Wow. And this, and the people he's put in these environmental positions are folks who have their ear to what we're calling the environmental justice movement. But that means um, the movement that really understands racism as central to this to this problem. Right. Exactly. And has he appointed the right people? Um, we think he has definitely done a great job of appointing progressive people. Um you know, some people we we've known, some people are are new to us, but who have good records and are committed uh, to uh, framing and centering justice in all policy. Well, so let's go back a minute because we talked about walking on two legs, community mobilization and real politics. So the real politics has taken a step forward. How do you think about the problem of co-optation or the problem of letting up on citizen mobilization? Is citizen mobilization still important to you, citizen education? That is foundational to, to the work at We Act. Um, we have membership meetings. Um, every month with at least 100, 120 um, folks, mostly low income. At least 20% of our members are live in public housing. Um, we had a, a meeting last night um, uh, on the controllers race. We've been doing community forums um, on all of the citywide races in New York City uh, to make sure that um, our members understand the issues and, and are able to connect with the candidates and ask them questions directly. Um, civic engagement, we've got to mobilize residents around civic engagement and make sure that they understand the issues and so that they can tell their stories and talk about the issues in an informed way where the media will listen, elected officials and policymakers will listen. Mm -hmm. So it is foundational. We don't do any policy work that does not have an organizing component. That is hugely important to me. I'm thinking back to Lyndon Johnson, who passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. But he was actually, you know, kind of a cracker from Texas. But there was a movement. There was fire from below that never let up. And I think that's that's true of, of, of all of American history. So I'm pleased to know that you're not letting up, that this is still foundational to, to what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And and I would say that certainly the Black Lives Matter movement um, has really thrust environmental justice more into to the um, consciousness, um, because when we understand that there's a racial reckoning in this country and we understand that racism permeates our entire system of, of housing, finance, education and schools, environment, um, it, it's all on a continuum. So this notion of intersectionality becomes very important in the way you're talking about this, you know, kind of notion that we talk about now, but it's always been there. The idea that you can't really separate racism from the environment or, you know, mobilization from war for war from kind of racism. And so these things matter together. And I think you all have a wonderful way of bringing them together. Well, you know, that's been our work um, for over 30 some years. Um, we have a lot of new uh, recruits to the movement. Uh, younger people are speaking up at a younger age. Uh, we work with, uh, we do environmental health and leadership trainings in a couple of public schools uh, in Harlem and Washington Heights. Um, we're seeing young people speaking out and being a part of uh, leadership on these issues. 
And that's exactly what we need because they're going to inherit the challenges of climate change, um, climate justice. You know, we haven't talked about climate justice, but I believe that you can't have climate justice without environmental justice. Mm -hmm. So we've seen all of these new groups spring up uh, talking about climate. Um, and many of them don't understand the underlying environmental conditions um, that create the lack of justice around climate, that create the fact that the lowest income communities, the environmental justice communities will be the first and worst hit by climate and the least able to be resilient. So uh, we see climate and environment as uh, totally intertwined and as work that we've been doing all along yeah. before somebody said there's a climate movement. Right. And, and, and when you say folks need to be educated, even movement folks need to be educated about the underlying uh, causes. Say just one more word about that. So, so if I'm out educating folks, what am I, give me, give me my uh, talking points. Absolutely. Climate justice is about ensuring that the most environmentally impacted communities are resilient enough to, um, to be sustainable in the face of extreme heat, sea level rise, flooding, uh, that they are that their voices and perspectives and experiences are heard and understood in crafting climate policies. That's why it has been very important that the environmental justice movement um, has been so central to to climate change issues mm -hmm. because our communities are the first and worst hit. Um, if you've got flooding and you've already got toxic waste sites and landfills, um, you're going to have more contamination. Right. You know, how do we address that? So those are issues that the environmental justice communities, the frontline communities, have to deal with on top of the environmental degradation that they're already addressing. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking to the Biden administration about it. You know, it, it's great to have new policies going forward, but we've got to redress the legacy of pollution that communities are living with, because that will only be exacerbated by climate change issues. And then, of course, when we talk about the just transition to an energy, a, new, a cleaner energy economy, we understand that um, this is an opportunity for the underemployed workers in our communities to, to have new and cleaner jobs. But will that happen? And so we now have to be very vigilant that our underserved workers can be part of this new green economy. And so uh, in, in Harlem, we've been working with um, to, uh, to train underemployed folks in solar installation. We've been incubating a worker cooperative uh, because, you know, in some cities like New York, um, not all workers can get into a union. And so how do uh, workers come together in a collective to um, to be able to bid on jobs, to be able to um, develop their own uh, working plans and and working um, working styles? So our our uh, worker cooperative, it's called Sun Solar Uptown now. Uh, they just finished a nine acre solar up array 
uh, installing that in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And so we are, they're now incorporated. We're, they're going to get certified as an MBE. And they're taking their, their livelihoods into their own hands. And so we've got to think about new kinds of worker association. You know, you, you, this is so uh, clarifying for me. And you, rens- you mentioned this moment as a moment of racial reckoning. And you're reminding me that in the environmental movement, as everywhere, there has to be truth and clarity and understanding, then repair, you know, uh, then reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation before you tell the truth and repair the harm, right? I mean, and that's what you're de- that, that process you're describing is... Uh, is very helpful to me. Thank you. That's great. Um, I I would like also to have you say a word about the urgency of now. Um, what is the work that must be done at scale? What's the work that must be done at speed um, in this moment? Political moments don't come every day. So we have a moment in time and we have got to take advantage of it. We've got to push forward on the American Jobs Act, um, you know, really thinking about infrastructure, not simply infrastructures as bridges and tunnels, but infrastructure as good, good family sustaining jobs, thinking about our families, daycare, uh, and how uh, we can really support our families uh, to, to live in sustainable communities. Um, we might only have a couple of years if other Democrats don't maintain power. Uh, since we don't seem to have a Republican Party that um, that wants to support anything uh, that the Democrats um, are, are are promoting, uh, despite the fact that it will lift all boats. And so we are at a moment of racial reckoning. I think COVID um, has certainly um, given us an economic um, problem and challenge. Um, and so we've got a moment to think about doing things differently as we try to bring our economy back, um, as we try to to move toward um, uh, reducing you know, the impact of climate change, um, as we switch from a fossil fuel economy to renewables. We have so many opportunities in those transitions, and we've got to take advantage of that. We've got to bring all the voices and perspectives and experiences uh, to craft the policies that are going to uh, really fuel this company for the next decades. And and you have an internationalist perspective also when you talk about the most vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my deputy director, Cecil Corbin-Mark, who uh, was well known all over the country, he was, um, he was our global guy. He, he yes. went, he'd gone to all of the... Um, the climate talks, you know, the, the COP meetings all over the world um, for the last couple of decades. Um, we have made, um, you know, contacts with environmental justice organizations uh, in, in Africa and South America. Um, and so we do understand that the global South, um, you know, if we think about environmental justice here, we need to think about justice in the global South. Do they have the resources to make the kind of uh, energy transition that that we all need them to make? Um, do they have the uh, technical assistance around regulation that they need? So the support and the 
uh, the funding commitments that have been made to the Global South have not been kept. And so we need to uh, mobilize to, um, to, to advocate that the Global South gets the support they need because we're also challenged by climate migration. Uh, and we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of the, the issues that we're seeing in Europe around migrants is because they've got to, to leave their countries where there's drought and there's no food mm-hmm. or where there's flooding and they've got to move away from, uh, from the waterfronts where, uh, or the ocean fronts that were part of their livelihoods. And so what are we going to do to support the global South? And I, I don't hear a lot of advocacy around that. And, you know, that's something the environmental justice movement needs to um, continue to, to support and advocate for. Well, you mentioned Cecil, and he was an extraordinary organizer, activist, um, died suddenly and too young, not long ago. I attended his memorial, and I heard several of the tributes to him and and was very sad at your loss, very sorry for your loss. Uh, But but you're not ending that focus. That was Cecil's work. But your focus is still the most vulnerable, and that includes internationally. So are there conferences coming up? Everyone refers to Paris. Is there anything coming that you are looking toward? Well, there is the the, the climate talks that will be coming up in, um, in Scotland, in Glasgow in November. And I've been talking to people and plan to reach out to the administration and say, Okay, we're talking about justice here. We got to be talking about justice globally. And, um, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? Are there going to be panels? What's going to be the discourse? Mm-hmm. And let's push that discourse uh, around support for the global South. How can people get a hold of you, Peggy Shepard? So uh, our website um, is uh, weact.org, W E A C T.org. And um, my my email is Peggy at weact.org. And okay. um, uh, we're pretty easy to get a hold of. High school kids are getting hold of me. So they <laughs> well, can me somewhere. They can, they can find it easier than the old people. But um, I want people to definitely connect to you, connect to this movement. The, the stronger we are, the more we unite around this, the stronger we are. Peggy Shepard, I thank you so much for your time. I uh, admire your work, and I, I send you nothing but good wishes and love and to you and your people. Thank you very much. All right, here's a little homework. It involves some research. A couple of questions. The Monsanto Company's annual budget for lobbying the U.S. government is what? The profits made by the top five oil companies in the last five years. What are the profits that ExxonMobil averaged each quarter last year? What's the percent of the combined $100 billion in profits that the Big Five devoted to renewable and alternative energy ventures? All right, those are a few questions to put us on track. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, and to Malik Alim, as always, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. 
Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Aleem. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an act of hope. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.